So you're watching TV one night and you're flipping through the channels and you come to one of those motivational speakers, uh, someone like uh, Tony Robbins or Susie Orman, and you hear them say that the key to happiness is sadness and weeping. What, what would you think? Uh, they're weird. I think I'll go on to HGTV and watch, watch that for a while. See, grief and happiness, they don't go together, right? Very few best-selling books today, if any, begin with the premise, the happiest people are those who grieve deeply. Uh, very few conferences are titled, Lament Your Way to Happiness. Who goes to that conference? All right, you pay money to get beat down. When people think and talk about happiness, you'll often hear things like, be grateful, Give more than you take or love yourself more, things like that. But see, Jesus doesn't think and talk like everyone else. Jesus thinks and talks like this, blessed are those who mourn. On the surface, that sounds contradictory. Uh, but God's son, well, he doesn't think that it is. His statements on happiness are counterintuitive and we must go with him beyond our assumptions about happiness. If you ask the normal person which freezes faster, hot water or cold water, most would intuitively answer cold water. I was reading this intro uh, out loud and practicing a bit in, in my home office and Andrew was laying quietly on the floor behind me and he heard about the cold hot thing in that part and he quickly said, cold water. Uh, so it seems logical that cold water freezes faster than hot water, even to a three-year-old who can pick up on it. But in some cases, hot water freezes faster than cold water. They call it the Mpemba effect. If you ask the normal person what will happen when you hit silly putty with a hammer, most would instinctively probably say something along the lines of, it will flatten out and leave a, a little indent of the hammer, right? But silly putty is a non-Newtonian fluid, uh, meaning that it sometimes acts like a liquid and it sometimes acts like a solid. So if you hit silly putty with a hammer, awesome, it keeps its shape. I mean, it pretty much keeps its shape, and that's weird. My kids and I went out in the garage, we tried it. It keeps its shape. Might true happiness work differently than most people assume? Let's go with Jesus beyond our assumptions about happiness. Three weeks ago, I gave you four simple points to help you hear, understand, and apply the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus intended. Here are those four points again. The Sermon on the Mount, number one, exhibits the righteousness of the king. Number two, expounds the ethics of the kingdom. Three, exposes our sin, guilt, and desperate need of God's grace in Christ. Four, explains how believers should seek to obey their heavenly Father by the Spirit's power in gratitude for His grace. These are helpful points for interpretation. And remember that Jesus preached the Sermon on the Mount to His disciples, disciples who were committed to Him. So, guilt and grace are properly understood the Sermon on the Mount, when they are properly understood, the Sermon on the Mount is then seen as an expression of gratitude. The Sermon is very much for the church today and not simply for a future messianic kingdom and era. 
The first part of the Sermon on the Mount is the Beatitudes, a word that we don't use in everyday conversation. Beatitude means supreme blessedness or utmost happiness. So when we study the Beatitudes, we are studying God's counterintuitive perspective on true happiness. You're not going to hear Jesus talk about champagne wishes and caviar dreams as, as Robin Leach did on Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The Beatitudes are happiness according to God. In other words, they are the definitive word on happiness. Jesus began his discourse on true happiness, where no one else begins it, poor in spirit, being poor in spirit. And as contradictory as that may sound, true happiness begins with acknowledging spiritual poverty. Self-righteousness is the enemy of true happiness. Self-righteousness is the road to misery, not happiness. So we need to recognize our spiritual bankruptcy before we can be truly happy. I think Jesus perfectly exemplified poor in spirit. Not because of his spiritual bankruptcy, but because of his humble descent to earth and lowly trek to the humiliating cross where he willingly bore the sin of God's spiritually impoverished people. He became poor in spirit to rescue the poor in spirit. A little clue. The first beatitude is the foundation for the second beatitude. So what does Jesus mean by blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. How can he say that people who mourn are supremely happy? Isn't that self-contradictory? And to resolve this tension, let's begin with the basic question, where did sadness, grief, and mourning come from? Genesis 3 has the answer. Adam and Eve transgressed God's law. They broke God's covenant of works. And from that point on, sin and death caused sadness, grief, and mourning. Life after Genesis 3 is filled with mourning. Think about the things that cause you and those that you love sadness, grief, and mourning. Death, disease, disabilities, unemployment, poverty, divorce, social injustice, physical abuse, material loss, car accidents, lots of things. And all that stuff and more can be traced right back to Adam and Eve's sin in the garden. Everything bad originates from original sin. The fact that Jesus used the word mourn assumes evil, assumes a world broken by sin, assumes that things are not as they are supposed to be and that's uncomfortable. Otherwise, what is there to mourn? Keep that in mind. Acknowledging the existence of sin and evil is necessary to understand blessed are those who mourn. Let's keep unpacking it. What does it mean to mourn? Well, generally speaking, something bad happens. It feels awful, and you feel sad, and you feel sorrow. You lament. One source said that pentheo, the Greek word for mourn used in verse 4, is a verb used to denote the grief over loss or sin. To mourn is to grieve or to lament loss or sin. Is everyone who mourns anything comforted. 
The teenager loses their boyfriend or girlfriend. The economy crashes and investments tank. The beloved pet dies. A best friend moves away. Is Jesus making a universal promise to every mourner? I don't think so. And here are several reasons why I say that. First, to whom is Jesus speaking? Not to the crowds, but to his disciples, people committed to him. Second, what does Jesus mean by they shall be comforted? He doesn't really explain or elaborate on that. Based on the context, though, the assumption is that those who mourn shall be comforted by God. That's the assumption, by God. And you might remember Jeremiah 31, 13 from last Sunday, where God says, I will turn their mourning into joy. I will comfort them and give them gladness for sorrow. God is the comforter. The psalmist said, this is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. God's gospel promises, his covenant promises comfort those who receive those promises by grace through faith in union with Christ. Unbelievers do not draw comfort from God or his gracious promises precisely because of their unbelief. Unbelievers turn to everything but Christ for comfort, so they should not expect to be comforted by that which they willfully reject and despise. This is not a promise to generic mourners in whatever they mourn, but a truth and a promise for a certain kind of mourner. Third, if this is a universal promise of comfort to everyone who mourns anything, What if the mourners mourn the loss of evil things? The drug addict sits in detox mourning the loss of his drugs. The prostitute is sad that she didn't make more money over the weekend. The student who got caught cheating mourns only the fact that they got caught. Will they find comfort? Not without repentance. True repentance leads to true comfort in Christ. Fourth, if Jesus is giving a universal promise of comfort, why do so many people never find true comfort at all? Many mourners are perpetually miserable and woeful and never draw comfort from the gospel. People who turn to everything but Christ for comfort should not expect to be truly comforted by Christ whom they willfully avoid. In verse 4, Jesus is talking about a specific kind of mourner. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Who is mourning what, and how will those mourners be comforted? Isn't that the real question? Well, let's get a handle on this. Consider the first beatitude. Jesus began with, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he builds on that and says, blessed are those who mourn. And the logic would follow, blessed are those who mourn their spiritual poverty who mourn their sin and guilt. See, it is one thing to acknowledge your sin and guilt, acknowledge your spiritual poverty, but another thing to mourn it and to go to God for comfort. Lots of people know that they're sinners, but few people mourn their sin. Carl Panzram, you might know the name, was a sadistic serial felon executed in 1930 And he said this in his autobiography. In my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I have committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I have committed, and he mentioned crimes that I will not disclose here, 
For all these things, I am not in the least bit sorry. Panzram knew his sin and guilt, but he did not mourn it. The phrase, blessed are the poor in spirit, sets us up to interpret, blessed are those who mourn. They are connected ideas, so the mourner that Jesus is referring to is the person who mourns their spiritual poverty, grieves their sinfulness, laments their guilt, and they continually seek comfort in the grace of God. Jesus is saying that the truly happy person sees sin and evil in themselves, in others, in the world around them, and they mourn, they mourn. We could say then, miserable are those who disregard sin, for they shall receive no true comfort. Paul's theology of mourning supports this interpretation of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul addressed sexual sin in the church of Corinth. One of the men in the church was having sex with his father's wife. And Paul told the church, and you are arrogant, Ought you not rather to mourn? Why, why weren't they mourning? Paul didn't simply mourn his own sin, but he mourned the sins of others in the church, and he mourned the devastating effects that sin had on people. James 4, 8 and 9, they say this, Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Mourn and weep what? Dirty hands, sin, impure hearts, double-mindedness. Those are things to mourn. Those are things to weep over. Paul shed tears when he talked to the Philippians about people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. People People who deeply mourn and grieve sin have a sound theology of sin and a sound theology of God's holiness and glory. Do you have sorrow over sin? Your sin? The sin of others? Well, if I look in the mirror there, I have a long way to go, folks, long way. I need God's grace to intensify my grief over sin. What about you? John Calvin said this, now nothing is supposed to be more inconsistent with happiness than mourning, but Christ does not merely affirm that mourners are not unhappy. He sees that their very mourning contributes to a happy life by preparing them to receive eternal joy and by furnishing them with excitements to seek true comfort in God alone. End of quote. Mourning sin, it pushes us to seek comfort in God's grace alone. The, the renowned Australian Anglican theologian Leon Morris wrote a profound thought on verse 4. Listen to what he said. It's a long quote. This is us today. Perhaps we should bear in mind that typically the worldly take a lighthearted attitude to the serious issues of life, a fact that is very evident in our modern pleasure-loving generation. In their seeking after self-gratification and pleasure, they do not grieve over sin and evil. 
Because they do not grieve over what is wrong in themselves, they do not repent. And because they do not grieve over the wrong they share with others in the communities in which they live, they take few steps to set things right. Because they are not moved by the plight of the poor and the suffering, they make no move to help the world's unfortunates. It may be that Jesus is saying that our values are wrong and that it is those who mourn in the face of the evils that are part and parcel of life as we know it, those who mourn over the way God's cause is so often neglected and his people despised, who are truly blessed ones. The psalmist could say, my eyes shed streams of tears because men do not keep thy law. It is to such that Jesus holds out the prospect of ultimate consolation. Now they mourn, but now is not always. God's ultimate triumph, and with it the comforting of those who have grieved over evil, is sure. It's sure. Morris is right. If we seek happiness in the pursuit of self-gratification and pleasure, then we do not mourn sin and we do not repent. If we self-justify and refuse to repent, why would we care about other people's sins and fighting for justice and goodness in the world around us? If our own sins, they don't move us, why would the sin and suffering of others move us? The coldest of hearts is the one which fails to mourn sin and evil. The most compassionate and just people are those who deeply mourn sin and evil and who go to Christ for comfort. The second beatitude chiefly addresses sorrow over sin. Simply put, sorrow over sin. That's the chief, uh, chief aim. Dr. Daniel Doriani from the PCA's uh, Covenant Theological Seminary, this is what he said, Jesus does not bless all mourning. He blesses the mourning that coheres with kingdom values. Isn't that consistent with what we've been studying? Kingdom, beginning of Matthew. There are kinds, Doriani continues, there are kinds of mourning that God does not bless. Criminals mourn their arrest. Corrupt politicians mourn their loss of power. God does not promise to comfort everyone who mourns for every reason, but God does promise to bless those who mourn over the right things. There is godly mourning over sin. Now, are you open right now for the Holy Spirit to convict you? All right, you can sit there with a hard heart and not be ready to really be molded by this, but I'm just wondering if you are ready to receive some challenges and you're open to the Holy Spirit to work in your heart to help you in this area. So, so let me ask you some tough questions to challenge you so that hopefully the end goal here is that the Spirit moves you to deeper grief over sin and then greater comfort in Christ. So be honest here. Number one, do you mourn sin? Sometimes I self-justify. Uh, sometimes I downplay the seriousness of my sin and offense and its consequences. Sometimes I care more about, listen very carefully, care more about the consequences of my sin than that sin exists in my heart. Uh, it is so easy, people of God, to trivialize sin. But the more that we trivialize it, the less we see the greatness and need of our Savior. Do you grieve your sin? 
so that you are in the prime position to receive grace and comfort from Christ. Number two, do you mourn the sin of others? I have confessed sin to other Christians, and on several occasions, I've received an odd response. Uh, I share my sin, and those listening to me laugh. Now, not to make fun of me. They're not mocking me. But because they struggle with the same sin and for some reason find in our common struggle with this sin humor. And I've done it too. So it's not just I've done this. But why? Sin is never a laughing matter. When has sin become funny? When have I wept because of my friend's sin? Very few people in my life have shed tears when I've shared my sinful struggles with them. Maybe we don't love others to the extent that we think we do. Does it break your heart to watch what sin does to people around you? Do you mourn when your neighbor drinks too much? Do you mourn when your coworker blasphemes God? Do you mourn when your best friend loves shopping and fashion and Facebook more than God? Do you mourn when your buddy disparages his wife? Number three, do you mourn social injustices around you? Listen, let me be very clear. The gospel is not social justice, but... Wherever the gospel is truly believed, there is a concern for social justice. Christians care deeply about social justice because anything that is truly unjust, that is truly inequitable, it grieves them. Brothers and sisters, let us mourn all that is evil. Racism should grieve us. Persecution of other religions should grieve us. Political mudslinging should grieve us. Police brutality, unfair labor laws, pollution, cruelty to animals, and material poverty should all grieve us. Here's a big one. The LGBT community has often been mistreated by confessing Christians and others. I've been a part of it. That should grieve us. A lot of professing Christians today, they just don't know how to apply the second beatitude to the LGBT issue and sin in general. They're lost on this. Many confuse approval with love. Many confuse cruelty and a cold shoulder with standing for the truth. Do we grieve our own sexual brokenness so much that we are filled with compassion, empathy, kindness, patience, and concern as we mourn the sexual brokenness of others with the aim to love and serve them in the name of Christ? Do we mourn the right way? I really think many professing Christians are confused about how to balance love and truth with the LGBT community, and a big part of that problem is they don't mourn sin. See, when we have a robust doctrine of sin and a robust doctrine of the glory of God, we can grieve our own sin and grieve the injustices shown to the LGBT community and others 
while at the same time grieving their sin and what their sin and our sin and all sin is doing to all of us. We can grieve them all at the same time. Maybe we'd be a little more loving and patient and kind and winsome. Maybe we'd be a little bit more convincing for Christ if we shed more tears over our own sexual brokenness. Maybe we'd relate a bit more and show more compassion and show more empathy. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted is not an easy thing to live out consistently. Folks, it's a spirit thing. The spirit. It's a spirit lifestyle. It demands of you and of me that we kill our pride, leave it at the door. Admit our spiritual poverty and begin by mourning the depth of our own sin and our own guilt and our own misery. Only then will we run to Christ for the comfort of his wild grace. And only then will we be ready, will we be willing to comfort others with the same comfort we have received by God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then our approach is different. God moved powerfully in my life. <laughs> On our recent trip to New England, Christine and I were in Providence, Rhode Island. I thought this might get me, but never know. Give it a whirl. We grabbed some lunch. We sat on a bench outside, beautiful Sunday, and we noticed a man, and he was asking for spirit change. And I'm somewhat fashionable, I think. I don't know. Students, you can laugh at me at that. But he had an underarm hoodie on that looked nice to me. Uh, and he had jeans on and he carried a cell phone and he didn't look like your average homeless person. And so Christina mentioned that it might be a social experiment. Um, and after I finished lunch, I went and I asked him what he was collecting money for. And it was not a social experiment. He shared a story. He's a convicted felon. He got out of jail. He hasn't had a job in 13 years. I think he lives at a local homeless shelter, and we ended up buying him lunch. And before he ate it, I shared the law and gospel with him. I testified to the grace of Christ. And brothers and sisters, the Spirit gave me tears. I don't know where they come from sometimes, but... I mean, they could be selfish, they could be spirit-led, but he gave me tears, I think, and I pleaded with this felon with tears. And I told him that I wanted to see him in heaven. I told him to listen to what I said. I told him to go to Trinity PCA Church in Providence where we had just attended that morning for worship, and, and the spirit was working in me to have compassion for this man. So when we got back home, I looked him up online. I shared the law and gospel and pleaded with tears with a man convicted of second-degree child molestation and second-degree sexual assault of a teenager. The pain and sorrow that this man has caused is immense. The pain and sorrow that this man carries in his life are immense. The sinful urge inside of this man is the same urge inside of you, inside of me, and it is immense. Sin is horrific. It is to be mourned. But is not God's redeeming and rescuing grace for sinners like you and me and this felon? Is the grace of God not in their reach? Is there not comfort in the gospel? 
We are not better than this man. We are just like him. And the more we understand that, the more we will understand, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. How desperate I am for God's grace. What about you? Number four, do you mourn the consequences of sin on the world around you? When you see someone who confesses the name of Christ hold up a sign that says God hates fags, do you laugh or do you mourn? We should mourn the hatred of the sign holder as well as the deep hurt in the heart of the lesbian who sees the sign. Do you yawn or mourn when an ordained minister who professes the name of Christ writes a book defending abortion or what she calls reproductive justice? I think we should mourn the many children slain under her infanticidal conclusions and at the same time lovingly and compassionately mourn this woman's blindness to the truth of the glory of God and the sanctity of human life. Confessions, I'm not a member of PETA. Nor do I support them, nor do I think that chicken are people. I delight in eating animals. And I have justification from Jesus to do it, Acts 10, 13, look it up. And yet, because of the gospel, I can mourn the cruelty to animals. Because cruelty to animals that God created is evil, considering God calls us to steward all of his creation well. Don't kick your dog. Many environmentalist organizations, they go way too far. They have anti-God agendas, hello, but do, do we not have this in common? As Christians, we are saddened when God's incredible, beautiful earth is abused and pillaged by the irresponsibility of human beings. Doesn't it grieve you? Well, number five might actually be the most uncomfortable of all if you have not been uncomfortable thus far. Number five, do you mourn sin because it dishonors the glorious God you love? Is this what's at the heart of the morning? Why do you mourn sin? Because you got caught? You hurt someone? You incurred unnecessary expenses? You embarrassed your family? We don't mourn sin properly unless we mourn it because it dishonors the glorious God that we love. William Hendrickson he read verse 4 and he concluded this, quote, It grieves them that God, their own God whom they love, is being dishonored, end of quote. I think that's pretty good. One study note said this, quote, The context indicates that these are mourning over sin and evil, especially their own, and over the failure of mankind to give proper glory to God, end of quote. Are you so enthralled with the glory of God that you grieve anything that dishonors his glorious name? Anything and everything grieves your heart. Now, Jesus did not stop at mourning, did he? Sadness, grief, and mourning are not the last stop on the route. If I end here, I've done you a great disservice. He said, blessed are those who mourn for or because, so he's going to explain 
Why mourners are blessed and supremely happy? For they shall be comforted. The, the happiness is not in sadness, grief, and mourning, but rather in the comfort received by God in the gospel. If you mourn in the way that Jesus meant, then you will be comforted. It, it's, it's inevitable. Comfort is inevitable for those who truly mourn sin because their mourning reveals their deep concern and care for God's glory and any disparagement of his glory. Their mourning identifies them with Jesus, having the, the kind of heart Jesus had, has, sorry, has. They are not cold. They're not aloof. They're not unconcerned. They mourn because God's grace and spirit are at work in their tender hearts, producing godly grief. 2 Corinthians 7.10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Mourn sin the worldly way, death. Mourn it in the godly way, repentance and life. So let me ask this. How do those who mourn receive comfort? So let's not overthink it here. Comfort is received by running to Christ for grace in his spirit. Over and over and over and over again, running to grace, or running to Christ for his grace and for his spirit. Over and over and over again, run to Christ, look to Christ, trust in Christ, receive Christ. That's where comfort is. He is comfort. Those who mourn their sin and quickly flee to Christ, they will be comforted by Christ. Grieving sin and rejoicing in the cross. Grieving sin and rejoicing in the cross are simultaneous. You do them at the same time. It is very possible that in giving the second beatitude, Jesus alludes to Isaiah 61, one through three, and Isaiah 61, one through three is the gospel of the Messiah in the Old Testament. The gospel streams through all of the Old Testament in increasing clarity and wait. It's Christ speaking through the prophetic voice of Isaiah, and he says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. That's the sovereignty of God, that he may be glorified. God sent his son to comfort those who truly mourn, to make them oaks of righteousness by his righteousness alone, given graciously through faith, all so that, what? So that the great comforter may be, may be glorified. The comforter. When you recognize that sin is infinitely atrocious, an offense to the holiness and glory of God. And when you realize your sin is ghastly, you're not hopeless. You're not hopeless. You're happy. 
You're happy because God's grace in Christ is yours through faith. That's why you're happy. The the promise of Revelation 21 uh, verse 4 is yours, dear people of God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning. Let that sink in. Neither shall be mourning. No more mourning. Nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. The day is coming. You have to get this, please. The day is coming, brothers and sisters, when your sin and sin in its entirety will be gone. Nothing more to mourn. The time for mourning is coming to an end. And time of rejoicing in the presence of God, it's here. We're getting a taste of it right now. But it is coming in full at the return of the king. Isaiah 49 verse 13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. He's going to comfort you. He's going to have compassion on the afflicted. Are you afflicted? Do you mourn your sin? Are you like, man, when is the end of this? What is the purpose of all this? And he comes to you and comforts you with the gospel of grace. What a kind, kind God we serve. Do you mourn sin? Do you mourn evil? Are you afflicted? Then as you trust Christ the King, the comfort and compassion of God are yours. The happiest people are the people who mourn sin and evil because in the gospel they are promised and they receive the comfort of God in his grace. Matthew Henry said, we are apt to think blessed are the merry. Isn't that what the world tells you? Blessed are the merry. But Christ, who was himself a great mourner, says blessed are the mourners. No one mourns sin and evil more than Jesus Christ, God's Son. He had no sin of his own to grieve, but he grieved everyone else's sin and that it dishonored his Father whom he loved. Not only did Christ mourn sin, he shed his own blood to bear its weight and penalty and to pay the price for it so that those who mourn with him might receive the comfort of his sacrifice, the comfort of his grace, the comfort of his satisfaction, the comfort of his cross, the comfort of his resurrection, the comfort of his increase, incre- not increasing, continual intercession before the Father for us. All that Christ is is a comfort. The second part of the second beatitude is true because Jesus Christ, the sovereign king, came to reverse the effects of the fall and therein to restore true happiness to human hearts broken by the fall and true restoration, don't miss this, to the earth. True restoration to the earth. Jesus could say, for they shall be comforted because he himself was bringing comfort through his life, through his death, through his burial, through his resurrection, and through his continued intercession for all his people. Is this what you hear in verse 4? Does your mind go to the king who alone gives comfort? Do you grieve sin, yours and the sin around you? And do you escape to Christ often? every day to receive his grace, to receive his spirit, to receive his comfort. 
Well, I hope so. I hope so. Because that's the only way that you will be comforted. That's it. One thing, that, the gospel. It's pretty simple. And that's how you're going to experience true happiness. And boy, does your pastor want you to be the happiest people on planet Earth. Because you run to Christ in the gospel. Make me happy by being happy in Christ. Then find comfort as the Spirit helps you live for Christ and give the comfort of Christ to others. The comfort you receive in Christ, you give that message of comfort in the gospel to others.